from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. On this episode of Newt's World, I wanted to have an honest conversation about the crisis happening at the southern border. While it seems obvious the migrant surge was caused by a changed administrations and their policies, I wanted to look deeper at the root causes of migration and the newly emerging patterns. And I wanted a guest who has lived and breathed these issues to help us understand this complex issue. Over the years, I've done a lot of work with Gallup. And at one point, Jim Clifton, the head of Gallup, suggested that I sit down and listen to Carlos Denton, who's going to be our guest. He's the president of CID Gallup, based in Costa Rica, a role he's held for 44 years. I found that he had such a unique understanding and a remarkable perspective looking at the entire process as it's evolved and why it's happening, that his viewpoint would really be educational for all of us. So, Carlos, welcome, and thank you for joining me. It's great to be here, and if I, I hope I can shed some light on the issue. Well, I'm confident you will. When you and I talk privately about the migration crisis, you really helped me understand various threads of the way it has evolved, and I'm really pleased that you'd be willing to come onto the podcast and share with our listeners some of what I've learned from you. But let's start with you for a minute. You've been extracting and analyzing what is on the minds of Central Americans and what is happening on the southern border for over 40 years. I mean, how did that relationship occur? And 
your whole understanding of Gallup of all the things that are going on? Well, we've decided because of our research that one of the ways to determine if a country is successful is if the people that are born and brought up there decide to stay in their own country and develop their skills and start businesses and raise children and families and so on. And when you have a series of countries where anywhere from 25 to 35, 40%, when you ask them if you have the resources, how likely is it you would leave your country and go somewhere else? And they say, it's very likely. And the place that they all want to go is the United States. This becomes then the sign that there's something sick inside the country. They're not perceiving there are opportunities. There are, in fact, if anything, there are risks. And this is now becoming exacerbated. The pandemic hasn't helped things very much. But I wanted to touch a couple of points. And one of them is that, because you want me to talk about specific things, the son of one of the cartels from Mexico went to Harvard, studied and got an MBA, and came back and said, Dad, we're missing a great opportunity down here in Mexico. These people are coming through and we're preying on them, but we're not getting any money out of this situation. And they have organized this cartel and several of them a business setup which works more or less like this. If you're a Honduran and you have a daughter who's 14 or 15 and you want this daughter to send up to your brother who lives in Washington, D.C., for $8,500, these people from the cartel will take her through up to Washington and deliver her to her uncle in a matter of seven or eight days. They've got it organized and it's working highly efficiently and there are varying rates. There's a rate where they just take you up to the river and if you're a minor and they put you across the river and tell you go and report into a border patrol agent or someone that represents the government. And then you have the ones that will deliver children at the Galleria Mall in Houston or in any one of another set of malls where they like to hand off the kids. And there's a thriving business. We estimate that 500 people a day are trafficked into the United States, not just from Central American countries, but of course, there's now the extracontinentals, which are beginning to show up on the border as well. And these are also being trafficked from Somalia, Syria, and these other countries. And so there's a business going on. And what I need to emphasize is that this business is hundreds of millions of dollars are being generated and people are paying this off. In some cases, they have the resources to pay it from the country of origin. In others, they come to the United States and become indentured servants, a concept that the United States understood in the colonial period, where you have so many years to work for whoever financed you, and you pay by working for a period of time for somebody. So now what we have to do is talk about what motivates the people to come up. And other than the fact that they don't see very many opportunities, many of them are living a situation which is extremely difficult in their countries. In countries with 40, 50% unemployment, with corruption at the head of government, with 
very little possibility of obtaining financing for your small or micro business that you might want to start. It comes down to just simply, if you can't eat and you can't survive, you're going to go somewhere else where maybe you can. I want to go back to the cartels just for a minute, because as I understand it, they're well enough organized that if you get to Seattle or Kansas City or wherever you're going, you then finish paying off the cost of getting there, and their reach is sufficient that they can enforce that contract inside the U.S. Yes, they can. I read a magazine story recently about some people that went to Long Island and discovered that the cartel was able to collect in Montauk, Long Island. And so pretty much they've got to reach anywhere where there's a drug distribution center with people distributing drugs, they also can enforce these contracts. So there's no way to welch out on them. Years ago, George Tenet, when he was the head of the Central Intelligence Agency, said to me that there is a dark world which is the underpinnings of all of our things that work for us, so international trade, etc. And the dark world had people trafficking, weapons trafficking, illegal transportation, illegal finance, and that it was actually a dramatically bigger and richer and more complicated system than we had any idea of. Is that your experience that, in fact, this is sort of a underlying alternative world, which, as you said, the guy goes to Harvard, gets a good MBA degree, comes home and says, Dad, let's modernize the business. Less risk, and apparently they make enough money that it justifies not moving cocaine or fentanyl. We estimate that there are between 500 and 600 people a day trafficked into the United States by these organizations. So you can multiply that out by the number of days in a year, and it comes to quite a bit. And each of those represent at least $7,000 in income to the criminal groups. And I just share a story with you. We have interviewed people who came back, and one young man talked about how he was trafficked, and he was outside of Reynosa, Mexico, which is right up there on the border, I believe, with McCallum, Texas. And he was riding in a little bus, and the bus was pulled over, and a guy from the cartel got on and said, how's everybody? Are they treating you well? If your guide isn't treating you well, let us know. We want to make sure that you're comfortable and happy and recommend our services. They're actually, this is viewed as a business just for the Zeta cartel, which handles the Gulf Coast of Mexico and up into that section, McCallum. This is a source of $400 million a year in revenues. So... This has become an alternative to the drug business itself. It's almost more important than the drug business for them. There are also people, if I understand it, who traffic people into prostitution or they traffic them into basically controlled environments. We had one case in Virginia, I think it was of two women who basically been kept as slaves. So there's also surrounding the organized cartels, there's this really large mass migration that has all sorts of other kind of complexities attached to it. Yes. Well, the five to 600 people a day that are coming into the United States trafficked is one number, and we're talking probably double that number daily now, and maybe even more that are just coming in on their own. And we need to talk about their motivations 
And one of the ones that Jim Clifton and I talked about is if you imagine a family, let's say of three or four, where they have an income of $1,000 a month and they have a couple of credit cards and they're up to debt to the hilt on the credit cards and the motor on their car goes out or they have to pay for an operation on a kid or something and they need money and this happens over and over again and they then go to the cartel representatives who are in all of the neighborhood grocery stores and borrow for $5,000 and the cartel is very happy to do that the only thing they say is, look, we collect. You can count on it. You may not be paying on your credit cards, but you'll be paying us for sure. And the people are desperate. They take the deal. And so the first time they miss a payment, the collector comes around to the house and beats up the wife in front of the man of the house or beats up the kids, one or the other. And at that point, desperation sets in. And by the way, it's not a unique thing. This is all the time and these people go on the run and they run north and they arrive at the border and they report that the cartel is after me i'm fleeing from the violence in my country but they don't mention exactly that the reason that they're being subjected to this violence is that they're up to the hilt in debt and the cartel is collecting the money they borrowed from the cartel so to some extent as you mentioned earlier, a fair amount of this is from failed states. I remember when we talked at one point, there was a particular town in Honduras, I think, where the level of violence was so high that there were almost no young males surviving. But as I understand it, Jim Clifton, as I should mention, is the head of Gallup. Gallup does this world poll, and I have to ask you in part, you had mentioned earlier that a lot of people would like to move. I don't see any of them moving towards China or Russia. I just say that because after all the complaints about America, it turns out that worldwide, if you have a country of choice, it turns out to be the United States that you'd like to go to. We always ask this to the people that want to migrate, where would you like to migrate? And the 60% or 70% always say the United States, you're absolutely right. Second place often is Spain, and this is a place that's particularly interesting for maids, for example, I've seen full plane loads taking off from the Honduran airports of women going as household domestics in Spain. Another country is Canada. If they go to Canada, it's probable that after a few years because of the cold, they head south, but at least they started Canada. There's a sizable, for example, Bolivian community in Argentina, there are a lot of Venezuelans everywhere. Venezuela is a country that they just need to get out. They're in Peru, they're in Colombia, they're in Panama. But you're absolutely correct. The place people want to go is the United States. That's the land of opportunity. That's how the world views the United States. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., that's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. You live in Costa Rica which has historically been the most successful of all the Central American countries, the least violent, the most prosperous. What is it about Costa Rican history that made it different? Well, the biggest thing that makes Costa Rica a different country is that it eliminated its armed forces. They decided that a country that size didn't really need an army, which was consuming 25% of the government budget, and so they simply eliminated. There are police, but um, and the 25% that they saved was used for education and for health services. And so this provided a population which is healthier and better educated than the rest of the countries. I should say that Panama also has eliminated its armed forces after the invasion of 1989, which was called Just Cause, if you remember. And Panama has had quite a turnaround. In fact, it has the highest GDP in the hemisphere outside of the United States at $31,000. And when you ask in Panama, how likely is it that you're going to migrate somewhere? No one's leaving. Twist and I went down to Panama City. I guess it was about 2015 or so. One of those jokes down there was that Panama City is a lot like Miami except people in Panama City can speak English. <laughs> That's 
<laughs> Excuse me. Yes. But neither the Costa Ricans nor the Panamanians are leaving the country because there are opportunities. There are startups. The governments, I'm not saying that they're honest, but they're much more honest than, say, the one in Honduras or Guatemala or whatever. The stories that I could talk about the governments, that would be another day for another subject. But what I wondered if we could just talk a little bit about the extracontinentals and how they're getting. What's happened is that there are two countries in South America, Ecuador and Brazil, that do not require a visa for anybody to come. If you have a valid passport, you can be from Somalia or any place at all, you can get in. So for example, the Haitians, who are now becoming a big topic in the United States, the Haitians can take a flight from Port-au-Prince to Quito and get in, and then they begin to work their way up through Colombia, across the jungles of Darien. It's a very tough trip. And what's happened is that each of the countries in Central America has said, okay, we'll let so many of those in a day. And so, for example, Costa Rica allows 250 people, Haitians mostly, but Africans or whatever, in for three days. They have three days to transit the country and get out at the other end. And Costa Rica doesn't allow more than that because we have the dictator in Nicaragua Daniel Ortega, and when Cubans began to come across, this bothered him. It bothered him since Cuba, he thinks that it's a wonderful country. And so he suddenly put a stop to it. And Costa Rica ended up with four to 5,000 Cubans trapped on the northern border with Ortega. So they're never sure what Ortega might do next. So with the Haitians, it's 250 a day. And if they go on through Nicaragua, same sort of a deal, then the next 250 go through, but they ration it mostly because of Ortega. You have almost a conscious pattern then, fly from Haiti to Ecuador, move north, and end up in the U.S. Exactly. It's a more comfortable way of doing things that no matter how tough than trying to do it in an inner tube, like some nations were doing it in the old days. Well, for a long period, the boat people from Cuba and the boat people from Haiti were an amazing number of people desperate to come. And I'm guessing because of the disaster of Haitian history and Haitian culture, that that's probably the number one country where people would like to leave because it's so difficult. Well, Haiti is where probably 70% of the people live in poverty, and it's really abject poverty. I've been there many times, and we do research there. There is a wealthy class, I should tell you, that is living higher up in the mountains. The Mercedes-Benz dealer does well selling cars there and so on, but most of the people are miserable. The government is not functional. There are no services. There are no job opportunities. It's a really a tough, tough situation. But that's one group of extracontinentals. But then we have now the Africans, the Moroccans, the Syrians that are coming across, and they don't go through Ecuador, they go to Brazil. They get themselves to some point in Africa where there are flights across the Atlantic there into some of the Brazilian places. Dakar is one of them, I'm pretty sure, where, they, where there are flights. Brazil admits them, 
And from there, they go on to work their way over to Columbia the same way. Finally, it's the same thing. They're mixed with the rest of them. What you have in part is more and more people know how to do this. And from our perspective as Americans, we should assume that an open border policy, I calculated one time that based on the Gallup worldwide numbers, there'd be about 150 million people who'd like to be in the U.S., which would be pretty hard to assimilate. That sheer scale would be amazing. I, unfortunately, probably if you did take in people without any limitation, you'd be getting some unsavory elements, quite a lot of them. But the extracontinentals have other issues because they think of a person that is African coming through these countries, they stand out. These countries are mostly made up of mulattoes or indigenous peoples. So it's very hard for them. If a Honduran goes through Mexico, it's very hard for the Mexican authorities to pick them out, but they can pick out these extracontinentals as they're going through. And so I think that they're subjected to a lot more problems. Going through Mexico, untrafficked, I have to point that out, untrafficked, because if you're trafficked, the authorities are being paid for sure. But if you're doing it on your own, you're going to be preyed on, especially going through Mexico. It's going to be very tough. One of the things we're dealing with, of course, is the degree to which Mexico itself is so penetrated both by organized crime and by a culture of payoffs that it's very difficult for Mexico to actually be able to lock down and stop things. And I think that's hard for Americans to come to grips with. But in addition, the Biden administration decided, and this is something I've seen other administrations do, that boy, if we could focus on Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, that would really solve it. But I was just looking at some numbers, and in May of 2019, 78% of the border encounters were from the Northern Triangle countries. But by July of 21, they were only 45%. 55% were coming from places other than the three countries the Biden administration wants to focus on. Well, we're now living in a global communication system, and the word goes out. We've been checking with our polls. Do you think there's a change in the policy of the United States, regardless of if there has been or not? Most people in these countries think that they can go to the United States, get in and live there, and there's no problem. They do, did not think that before in the last administration. They thought that the thing was clamped down. So the word spreads. You don't need media to do it. It's a word of mouth. When you ask people, do you have a relative or a close friend living in another country? What you get is that many, many people from Salvador and these other countries, many do. And what happens is migrants generally go to a place where they have a family member because they need to bunk up. They need somewhere to put their heads down while they get themselves set up and look for work and so on. And so when a migrant goes there, this is the norm for migrants. They go back and they're telling their kids, their wife, their relatives, things are wonderful here. There's an old story about a young man from a city in El Salvador called Usulatan, who in 1949 went to a town just outside Washington, D.C., and had a picture taken of himself after he'd been there two weeks, leaning on a pink Cadillac, and sent it back to his mother. 
After that, every person from Usulatan who migrated went to that particular place because if you two weeks you could get a pink Cadillac, it didn't matter that it wasn't the guy's car, it was just simply the image. So the Northern Triangle people have family up in the States now. There's an estimate that, for example, Salvador, there's 8 million living here and there's 3 million living in the States. With those kind of numbers, every single person knows somebody in the States where they can go if they want to. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that Los Angeles is the second largest Salvadorian city after San Salvador. I think so. That's absolutely right. I don't know if this is true or not, but somebody argued that MS-13 became impossible for the police to deal with because it imported back into El Salvador the techniques of the gangs in Los Angeles. And they simply had a much higher level of organization and structure than people had dealt with in El Salvador before MS-13 showed up. Think about this. If you're a Salvadoran and you migrate to the United States, let's say, illegally, the first thing that you have to do is find a place to sleep, but after that, you try to get two jobs, two 40-hour jobs. You need to work 16 hours a day just simply because you're going to be sending money back. You need to live. And normally what they do then is four or five men will rent one apartment, share the expense of running the apartment, put mattresses on the floor, and that's where they live. And they're sending the money back, and within a year or two, they bring the wife up, and if they can, the kids. And so the family is now a unit. The mother is working 16 hours. The father is working 16. And the kids are left alone to be raised on the streets. And what happens is there are the gangs waiting for them, especially in Los Angeles, the Maras, they're called, M-A-R-A, are waiting for these kids. So what happens is they don't nationalize them. They don't become citizens. And so they've been doing crimes with the gangs as minors, and the sheriff is letting them go. But when they're 19, all of a sudden they're in a cell there, and the sheriff says, well, you know, are you an American? No. They deport them. And I personally have been in the San Salvador airport watching a plane coming in, one of the planes that carries deported people, and you see these kids coming in, and they come into the airport with a garbage bag with some of their possessions. They know no Spanish. They have never been in San Salvador in their lives, but that's their nationality. And they're let loose. They're not wanted in Salvador for anything. They're let loose and they go into the city. And what they did then is form gangs. And you're absolutely right. The thing was that the American Maras, or these kids that are not Americans, but were raised in the States, have better tattoos. And so you could always distinguish which were the gang members that came back from Los Angeles and knew how to handle firearms much better than the ones here because they had the really nicely colored tattoos. That's wild. In a sense, we are exporting some of our criminals back to countries that don't have strong enough police and other structures to cope with them. Well, imagine someone who's been dealing with the police of Los Angeles for one reason or another and all the things that the gangs do in Los Angeles and has learned how to use firearms that were not really prevalent here and so on. And what happened, of course, is that these gangs originally 
operated independently, but since then the cartel has hired them. The gangs, the Maras as they're called, become the strong arm of the cartels inside these countries. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. We send limited amounts of money to Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. These are all countries that have, as you pointed out earlier, governments of dubious honesty and efficiency. Does that money actually accomplish very much, or would we have to send dramatically more to actually have an impact? Well, this is an interesting subject, because I remember I talked to the congresswoman from El Paso, whose name escapes me at this moment, but you had suggested I talk to her, and she kept saying to me, we sure wish we didn't have to send the money to these governments because the money just doesn't get out there. The focus these days for the money that's going down to these countries is the objective is to develop something called resilience. And what does that mean? 
it means that people living in these barrios are, are going to be able to stay on even though the conditions are worse. They're going to put lights up on the streets and maybe make sure that the schools stay open and put in a police post, that kind of thing. But I don't personally think that developing resilience so that people can stand living in these kinds of situations really will stop the young people from heading north if they have the chance to. So, I mean, so part of our problem is just the more successful we are, the bigger the beacon will be for other people to come here. I'm going to tell a story, which I shouldn't, but I will. I can remember when Jesse Helms decided to visit Honduras, and he sent down and said, well, I'm there because his former AA had married a Honduran colonel and moved to the capital of that country. Deborah DeMoss was her name. And Jesse said, I want to see what the billion dollars we've sent down is produced here in Honduras. And they were in an abject panic over the mission because there really wasn't anything to show. That's uh, <laughs> I hate to say that. But that, that is what happened. Well, yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with it. There's a fascinating book by Sam Quinones called Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. He was a Los Angeles reporter who really got deeply immersed and fluent in Spanish, very comfortable in the region. He describes one particular town in Mexico, figuring out, we're about six or eight guys, start, I think, just outside of L.A., and exactly the way you described, across the border illegally, all of them are in one apartment, and they figure out that they could operate a drug operation at the retail level, and they actually modeled it off of Pizza Hut. So, you know, you would call them, they would meet you somewhere, they would deliver to you, and they began building franchises across the whole country. And it all went back to this one relatively small town. And he said the initial signal was that the guys who'd gone to California had new blue jeans. And when they came back home, the new blue jeans said to everybody else, wow, if I go up there, I could get new blue jeans too. I just mentioned it because it's one of the most fascinating stories about how did this combination of cocaine and heroin and now fentanyl become basically nationwide. And these guys were operating in North Carolina. They were operating all across the country. Their ground rule was no big cities and no place where the local gangs had guns because they wanted to be a retail product, not part of the traditional violence that we associate with crime. We send this money down to governments that are of, at times, dubious efficiency and dubious honesty, who are presiding over a culture which isn't competitive with us in producing wealth and productivity and standard of living. How do you see all of this playing out? This is another subject that Jim Clifton and I have talked about a great deal to facilitate the development of businesses in these countries, setting up the young people, finding entrepreneurs that can have an experience, get something going in their own country, and maybe hire two or three others. And what we need to do is to develop a lot more startups on the business side, rather than focusing on social issues which involve the government, try to get money out to young people. Right now, if you're a young man, in Guatemala or one of the Chichi Castanango and you want to start a business, there's no local capital available for you. 
And the only people that really are going to want to hire you are specifically the people you just mentioned. The drug guys will start you out as a runner or as somebody that stands on the corner in case the police come by or whatever it is. But the thing is, what we really need is new businesses in these countries. And there are lots of people with an entrepreneurial spirit, but what's happening is they're leaving. They're headed to the States. There are lots of stories about businesses started by these Central Americans and others in the States where they've been successful. It's got to be not focused as much on government to government and this sort of the social resilience and this kind of issues and more on entrepreneurs, developing entrepreneurs, which Gallup has a program specifically designed for this, which Jim could describe in great detail. But what I've said in the past when I've had the opportunity to speak like I have today, you have a sort of one of two choices. It's not necessarily just or unjust. You can either have the Latin Americans up there living with you and doing their lives, or you can have them back at home. And if you want them back at home doing their businesses and their activities there, we need to sort of finance the kind of thing I'm talking about. I remember a little bit more than 40 years ago, working with a group at Georgia Tech that was in the Cali area of Colombia, which was far enough away from organized crime at that time, that they really were economically developing. Their whole purpose of the Georgia Tech Project was to figure out how you optimize the rate of development. But one of the frustrations of Latin America, but also most of the third world, is you have a place like Venezuela, which at one point had one of the highest per capita incomes in the Western Hemisphere, looked like it was going to be a very stable, prosperous, middle-class, democratic society. And for the last 20 years, it's been on a road to hell with corrupt dictators who have shattered the fabric of the culture and shattered the fabric of the economy. I mean, it seems to me that that's one of the great challenges we have worldwide. When you have a regime like that or like the regime in Haiti, the level of change they would require for their country to be more desirable than living in, say, Jacksonville, Florida, is a staggering challenge. Now we're talking about going forward. One of the things that's happened is that political parties that were established many years ago have disintegrated in many of these countries. And now, for example, there's an election coming up in Costa Rica in February, and there's 26 candidates for the presidency, each of them with some sort of a political party that they're representing. And the sort of traditional two-party system that used to exist has faded away. And in Panama, it's headed in that direction as well. And the minute that you make it a personality election rather than one based on programs and parties and so on, what you're looking at is the inevitable sort of next step. For example, here in San Salvador, there's a gentleman who's the president right now who I think wants to stay on as long as he possibly can, even though the Constitution doesn't allow it. Once it becomes a personality thing, there is this trend that takes place. So Venezuela, Maduro's there for good. He's builds up the military, makes sure they're well paid and they're willing to fight the rest of the population to keep him in. And they're all in the drug business. Latin America, there's a long way to go. And I was thinking when Venezuela 
finally sees the light and Maduro is gone, there'll be all these Venezuelans headed up to the States because their lives were ruined by Maduro. It's kind of a repetitive thing. I have a daughter who lives in Key Biscayne, and she said, you can tell housing prices based on which country has a crisis. Yeah. Uh, because people who are wealthy tend to be people who look ahead. And most of the wealthy Venezuelans figured early on that Chavez and then Maduro represented the end of their world. And so they just bought a place in Florida. They said, this is inevitable. I want to have a place I can hide if I have to. And it actually was good for her because it drove up the price of housing. So her house is worth a lot more than it used to be. Carlos, I know that Gallup is very committed to being nonpartisan and nonpolitical because it wants the integrity of its polling and the integrity of its analysis to be the best in the world and, and beyond any sense of partisan distortion. So to the degree within that framework that you can comment, we've had the Obama approach and then the Trump approach and now the Biden approach, which is sort of Obama on steroids. How do you see the evolution of American policy affecting the scale of migration towards the U.S.? There's a common thread throughout all of these countries when they talk about U.S. policy towards the region. And what any sort of thinking person or politician will say is, it doesn't matter who is governing the United States, there's only two things that they're interested in when it's dealing with Latin America. One, stopping the drugs, to stopping the migration, and anything else is not of very much interest to U.S. policymakers. But having said that, there are two institutions which operate in the region. One is called IRI, which is the International Republican Institute, and the other one is the NDI. And even though they come from two different sides of the political spectrum inside the United States, in Latin America, they share a set of principles, one of them being that it's very important to make the democracies more robust, because the big miracle of the turn of the century was that the United States managed to get rid of all the dictators in Latin America and convince everyone to have democracies and to have elected leaders. This is one of the great success stories of the United States. And now... It's unwinding in certain of the countries, like El Salvador, and certainly in Venezuela, and to some extent Bolivia, and some of these countries, where they're moving over to a personalist, what would, I forgot, Ortega, where he still talks the communist ideology, but is one of the biggest businessmen in his country, that kind of thing. The operational basis of looking at the U.S. foreign policy is that it's devoted to controlling drugs and controlling migration. And on the first topic, the actually the interdiction program has been very successful. I mean, there are just tons and tons and tons of drugs seized every day coming up through these regions. When someone says, explain the drug business to me, I say, well, you can buy a kilo of cocaine in Medellin for $2,000. If you can move it to Mexico City, that one kilo is now worth 16000 And if you can move it to New York City, it's worth 48000 That's a big markup and a motivator for people to keep trying to do it, especially in poor countries. 
What I can say on the migration pattern is that the idea during the Trump years was that there was a shutdown and this spread through the region. No, you're going to get pushed back. You're not going to be allowed in. If you want to claim asylum, and many of the asylum seekers base their petition on asylum on the fact that the Mata is going to do things that are violent to them, but it's because they owe them money. This is the part they leave out when they fill out the request. But now the word is that the border is open and anybody can come in and probably achieve legal residency in a period of a couple of three years and stay on. And I don't know, as a friend of mine said, if you have a country, don't you have the right to decide who comes? It's like your house. Who do you let come in and live with you? You should have something to say about this. And the American people are not getting that say. Do you think it's possible to actually control the border? Well, I think that there will always be some people coming across, but at this huge level, there's got to be a, a shift in policymaking. I mean, a place like Haiti, with its 11 million people, many of them starving every day, something's got to be done more than just simply trying to shut them out. I think that there's got to be some investment in the country, but investment done wisely. Most of the buildings that fell down in Port-au-Prince in the 2010 earthquake were buildings built with USAID money. And the USAID said, well, what we need to do is promote construction companies among Haitians. And all of these new, beautiful, new buildings were built without any rebar. And so what fell down in the earthquake were none of the old houses. It was all the AID money houses that these guys built the houses without rebar because we haven't had an earthquake since 1880. We're not going to have one now. The stories of this type are so many that I really don't know what to say. Haiti to me has always been one of the most puzzling problems because right next to it on the same island, the Dominican Republic is a dramatically more successful society. And we've had some direct involvement in Haiti since the mid-1920s when the Marines were sent there. And it's really a country in so much trouble that in the culture, the politics, the corruption, the violence, that to really get it to a point where people would be comfortable staying in Haiti is such a dramatic change. And of course, the local power structure will fight it because if you're the guys with the Mercedes living up on top of the mountains, you're fine. You're not sure you want to risk any change that might help all those poor people down in the valley because it might threaten your status. I think it's a very hard problem. Right. But it's got to be addressed somehow. And basically, the educational level has got to be raised. The educational level, median education of a Haitian is third grade. And a person with a third grade education really is very limited in what they can offer in a modern economy. The ones who are managing to leave are a constant brain drain because people who are smart enough to get to Brazil or to get to Ecuador and work their way north into Texas or California, they're relatively competent compared to the people who are still trapped. I mean, it's a remarkably hard problem. I just want to say, in closing, first of all, thank you for this kind of candor and this kind of time. And I have greatly admired your work. 
Jim told me early on that you probably understood Central America better than anybody he'd ever talked to. So I appreciate your years of diligence in studying the entire region. And I also appreciate your candor. I think anybody who hears this podcast will learn an immense amount that they did not know beforehand. And I wish you well as you crisscross the region and continue to both learn and then teach the rest of us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Carlos. This was great. Anytime. Delighted. Thank you. Thank you to my guest, Carlos Denton. You can read more about the migration crisis at our southern border and the causes on our show page at newtsworld.com. And you also have a link to Gallup at the show page so you can see all the various sources of information that Gallup provides, which is truly amazing. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.